Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Centric Podcast where we hope to educate, inspire and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life and I'm your host Oman. Firstly apologies for the delay in releasing this episode but hope being worth the wait. As we come towards the end of our Cradle to the Grave series we discuss many issues that face us in old age and towards the end of our lives. This week we discuss a number of topics with Sheikh Amr including preparing for old age and retirement. And what about the issues? Are elderly people a burden on others? Or can they actively help the community with their experience and wisdom? We think about the attitudes and responsibilities towards elderly parents. What about the aspect of loneliness, dementia? And often there's a conflict in families around inheritance and wills, and we touch upon that as well. Another topic that we discuss is end-of-life care, including palliative care and hospices, and also euthanasia. Uh, as I've mentioned before, the series were originally broadcast on Radio Ramadan Glasgow in Ramadan in 2017. And you can find out more on their website www.rr365.co.uk. Remember to catch up on the other episodes on The Cradle to the Grave, where we've covered topics such as marriage, parenting, childhood abuse, and we'll be talking about death and bereavement. As always, we're very fortunate to have our guest, which is Scottish-born Islamic scholar Sheikh Amr Jamil of the ISILWIS program and Unity Family Services. And there's more details about his work in the episode show notes. Please remember to support our podcast by liking, sharing and reviewing wherever you get your podcast from and keep following us on social media. And please do get in contact if you are benefiting or enjoying the podcast. Until next week, Assalamu Alaikum. Assalamu alaikum and welcome. You're listening to Cradle to the Grave show with Sheikh Amr Jamil and uh, I've also got guest Umran Amin uh, with us. Assalamu alaikum brothers. Assalamu alaikum. If you've been joining us in previous weekends, every Friday and Saturday night, we're t- talking about many issues that are affecting us from literally the cradle to the grave. So we've covered many uh, important topics, but also in our topics, we're also coming towards the element of the end of one's life. And so we're talking really about elderly, old age, but all of um, many issues associated with the end of life and some of them quite difficult issues. So we'll be talking a bit about coping with old age, you know, rights and expectations. Uh, we'll talk a bit about dementia and, you know, Islamic perspectives on that. Perhaps touch on inheritance and wills. And uh, I think focusing a lot on sort of end of life care, palliative care for terminal illnesses, hospices. Um, so a lot of these uh, very difficult topics, but issues that I think as a community we need to discuss, we need to get some sense of understanding around this, because um, the more we speak about it, the more we'll understand it. But uh, Sheikh, this is a really important topic, and I guess it's um, it's one that's perhaps not easy for us to discuss and listen to, but I guess um, we know as Muslims in this country, we've got an aging population, you know, uh, as wider society, people are living longer, even many illnesses and diseases, which, which in the past, many people would have, you know, uh, uh, passed away from. Actually, there's more and more treatments available and there's more specialised, um, you know, services and treatments to keep people alive for longer. But also on the other end, I guess when we're talking, although we'll touch on areas such as end-of-life care, we obviously know that can affect us at any age. So aspects of hospice and, you know, dealing with things towards one's end-of-life and terminal illness can also happen at any age. But Sheikh, I guess, focusing initially, I guess, this whole aspect of coping with old age and I think certainly there's a large cultural element for many of us that are from South South Asian background as well. Could you maybe just explain to us a little bit about this whole aspect of how, I mean just as a wider perspective this whole uh, you know set the scene this whole framework about uh, you know this importance about as you know people get older and our responsibilities and society's responsibility in terms of you know how because unfortunately in some sections of Society it seems to become, you know, as soon as you become old, you become a burden on society. And Islamically, it's actually, it's not like that, isn't it? It's actually something that we should value, etc. So can you give us a, a few words about this whole concept of as people get older and more senior in their life? Yeah, so, so alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulullah. In general, the texts or our teachings um, teach us to respect uh, respect our, our elders uh, and give them the honour that they deserve. Um, obviously, there's emphasis on parents, and your parents are obviously going to be a lot older than you, and they will probably reach your old, old age. And the Quran actually talks about this 
that um, if one or two of them reach old age, you shouldn't say lahuma uf. You shouldn't say, even say uf to them. So uh, that basically means by logic, if you can't say uf, then you can't raise your voice, you can't mistreat them, etc., uh, etc. Et so there is that emphasis. Generally, for for uh, the elderly, there's a general recommendation of respecting them. Um, and also learning from them because they've just been around a lot longer than, than we have, so they have more life experience. Doesn't matter; doesn't mean they're always right, but they have experience in their hands. And if anyone remembers their grandparents, they will remember stories they've heard from their grandparents. Um, the thing with grandparents is they've got more time than your parents. Your parents are quite busy. Your grandparents have got more time. So some of them, some people say that I was taught Quran by my grandparents. I was taught. Uh, Urdu by my grandparents, I was taught this, I was taught that, certain stories they remember from their grandparents. So they're going to pass on that wealth of knowledge and obviously they've had experience, a lot of experience, made mistakes with their own children. So they um, are in a, in a sense the, the finished article um, and uh, obviously in old age you become, like you said, death can come at any time but in old age you become more aware of it so the likelihood or the attachment to the dunya seems to fade more in old age and people become generally more religious, they become more conscious of going to the mosque, of giving sadaqah, uh, of spending their time reading Quran, all these things a lot of people do a lot more in their old age. And so there's a certain light, a certain noor that comes with that, um, that illuminates their faces, that illuminates their hearts. Um, and just obviously a very simple thing is uh, their the power of their du'a if they make du'a for you at that age if you're good to them they're going to make du'a for you so um, we see them as um, uh, as a treasure we see them as something that should be they're precious and to be honest it's, it's one of the the things that non-Muslims look up to the Muslim community one of the things that non-Muslims notice is the way we treat our elderly and maybe that's changing now but Traditionally, they've always said, "You guys look after your your elderly. You you know um, you don't put them into um, nursing homes." So they have a lot of respect for us in that respect. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into parents specifically or no, no. I think that sets the scene, and I, I always find it it's almost that you know circle of life, isn't it? Where they talk about when you you know when you have young children, you know you need to hold their hand, you need to look after them, you need to meet their basic needs. And then as an adult, you know, you, you become very independent. You think, you know, the world revolves around you. And I guess in old age, again, they need that extra care of holding their hand. You know, maybe their legs are giving way or they're weaker if they're unwell. They need that care. So it's almost becomes full circle, really. I think there's a, there's a humbling aspect to it as well, um, from a spiritual aspect. I'm thinking of my father, uh, who is, you would describe it as a workaholic and maybe a lot of people his generation were like that they came from difficult backgrounds poverty and they, they really worked hard um, and I, find, I think they found retirement or old age difficult because they were always so active and then you know their eyesight's going their heating's not so great um, and they start to, they, they, something that they've not done their entire life they're having to rely on other people which they didn't really like um, but there's actually, from a spiritual perspective, there's a humbling aspect there because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching the human being that just like when you were, you were, you were nothing, he actually just, he says that you were, uh, in the Quran it talks about that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us from a nutfa. Nutfa is a drop of sperm, which if you land in your clothes, you have to wash it now, it's najasa. But he's reminding the human being, this is your origin. And in other words, you were nothing and I created you, and then I've given you all these abilities, and then I'm going to humble you in old age. So things that you could do before you can't do anymore. So it's about taking that away, and the person then, because they become humbled, they they appreciate the blessings that they have, and also they understand that Allah subhanahu wa is in charge, uh, and, and doesn't matter what you've achieved, you're nothing in, in, in comparison to his power. It's interesting you talk about, about that element of workaholics and stuff, and obviously a lot of people in our community are businessmen or self-employed. Uh, I remember one of my um, my supervisors, my colleagues, he was cl- getting close to retirement, and he says, look, I can't wait, I'm going to... Um, 
I'm going to try, you know, me and my wife are going to travel the world. We're going to go to this place, this place. Our kids are grown up. They've left the home. And, you know, he's just really looking forward to it. And they think actually almost life was going to begin once they retired. And I thought about our own community. And it's like, you know, as soon as, you know, um, the older, you know, the empty nest syndrome, your kids have left, you know, the whole world collapses because a lot of our elder generation, the whole life's revolved around work. And so they didn't really develop those hobbies and culture and interest and that, you know, the concept of travel was go to Pakistan and come back type of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, it was such a contrast because, you know, he was saying, I'm going to go to this museum and this theatre and this. And then at our own, uh, so almost, in, and you see in society, um, a lot of workplaces, they actually have a pre- preparation for retirement um, process. So you wind down your days, you start getting ready. Um, they talk about how you're going to occupy your time because if you go from working all your life to then doing nothing, um, it doesn't work. And I see enough, and I know examples where, you know, the kids are kind of said, you know, are now um, doing well financially. You know, they've become educated and saying to their parents or their dad, look, you don't need to go to the shop anymore. And the dads, you know, take the break and last for about two months and then goes back to the shop. Not because they need to financially, but almost they don't have anything to replace it with. And obviously so there's, a, there's a danger of their mental health being affected yeah. as well, isn't it? They, they can get depressed very quickly because they just don't know what to do with their time, yeah. like you said, because they haven't developed those hobbies. I mean, if you look at a lot of normal Muslims, they'll play golf. They'll spend a lot of time doing that. They're members of, of clubs um, and spend a lot of their spare time, you know, their social life there, whereas, like you said... Our parents, um, a lot of them would just work, 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 work. It was work. work and family, wasn't it? Yeah, work and family. Kids grow up and get married and leave and then, you know, the work finishes or whatever. They don't need to work anymore and it's just kind of... And I guess, I mean, how, so, so spiritually and stuff, I mean, how could they start preparing for that? I mean, do they need to start thinking? Because routine is really important, you know, in day-to-day life, routine structure. And often work gives you that. You get up, you have to look after yourself, you have to go to stuff. And I guess once that you don't... that drive isn't there I guess that's where prayer and all these spiritually you know and mosques and stuff can be really useful and I think um, there's a hadith that says you know um, the best person is the one who whose life is extended and basically they do a lot more good deeds so they should see it as an opportunity not as something oh my god what am I going to do with my time it should be brilliant I've got so much time that I've not done all these things I'm going to now go on Umrah for example uh, I might do another Hajj if your health's up to it. Um, I'm going to do all the things that I couldn't do uh, previously. And the thing is, time um, should should be seen as a blessing. It shouldn't be seen as something I'm um, killing time or I'm mm-hmm. bored. You've got to um, fill up your fill up your time. Uh, so obviously, there's there's one element of it is is hobbies. But I think again, it's, it's one of these things. I'm always constantly thinking about how do we um, get the best out of our community? In other words, the um, resources that we've got in our community, how can we extrapolate that from people for the ben- for the betterment of, of our society? The elderly are a, are a resource. They have wisdom. They have, I know you've been involved in that cultural, what was that? Was that? Colourful heritage. Colourful heritage. I mean, that's a brilliant project, um, recording people's lives. And there's so, many, so much wisdom, so much we can learn from their experience. Um, but... They've got a wealth of experience. Um, they've got opinions. They've got time. One of the things they've got time, so they can. It's a it's a matter of how do we how can we extrapolate that time out of them, and the and the experience they've the life experience they've got, in a way that they can uh, give that back to the community. How can we use that uh, that that um, potential they've got? So that we can use it as a resource, and that's something that we need to we need to think about collectively. And that's perhaps something that we need. To, I know some mosques and centres are starting to make you know have been doing some some aspects of daycare centres or providing facilities. But I guess with the growing numbers of elderly within our community, we need to start providing. I know this is an ongoing theme every week, but as a community, we need to wake up a little bit and start providing services, but specialised services even. If you think about in wide, it's a simple thing. Like, for example, I'm, I mean, I'm going to be on Radio Ramadan Edinburgh tomorrow night. The the topic is loneliness, loneliness and depression, but focuses on loneliness, right? So, um, and I remember uh, I was driving on uh, the the Emmy, and I was coming up from England, and I was just driving. It was, I, I I usually listen to BBC Radio Four, and if you don't listen to it, you should listen to it because there's a lot of 
really good programs and you learn a lot. So um, the program, it was a bit loneliness and um, they're talking to, to the elderly and some of them were saying that they were praising Radio 4 because they said that that is like their companion, it gets them through the day. And I felt really sad. I felt really sad driving. I thought, you know, people are used to a radio, a radio being their companion. And it really started making me think about loneliness and I remember seeing a project where they had exchange students who need to practice their English. So they got them to come into homes. So they were practicing their English with these elderly people and the elderly people were getting a conversation. So the win-win for both. So the win-win, yeah. so it's a win-win situation. So this is what I'm saying. If we just think, if we, we collectively think, we can come up with solutions that can, be, that can benefit everyone. But I would say not to see the elderly as a, as a, as a burden, but mm. that, that richness, that wisdom they've got, that resource that they've got, how, do, how can we use that? And that's just one example of, of just thinking out the box. And that's what, you know, you mentioned that Colourful Heritage program, uh, uh, project, which uh, has been really trying to create video archives of these, you know, the first and second generations of, of Muslims that came to Scotland. And when we interviewed a lot of them, the most fascinating, they had fascinating stories, you know, in terms of, you know, there's no halal meat, you know, they came off a plane and this is how the bus drivers helped them out, you know, non-Muslims and Scots. And, and whenever I would ask them, I said, look, have you told your kids these stories? And they said, no, because the kids are too busy. And this, it always reminded me, I don't know if you used to watch Only Fools and Horses, his Uncle Albert, you know, who kept, keeps talking about the war <laughs> and they, they would get so bored. And I think, finally, you know, it's just somebody needs to listen to these mm. amazing stories. And sometimes the kids and the grandkids, uh, you know, um, are, you know, just don't hear them. And particularly about things like partition and stuff, which is such a traumatic event. And a lot of them have never talked about it because it's been so traumatic. Mm. But actually, if you don't hear these stories, then uh, you, we're going to lose them. So what's our sense of um, responsibility? So as our parents are getting older, um, whose responsibility is it to look after them in terms of, uh, suppose they can still be managed at home, but is it you know the son and the daughter? Is it the daughter-in-law? You Because know, often that can lead to a bit of tension and, and friction so um, from the Islamic perspective where do we stand um, so <clears throat> in terms of who's responsible so as a parent you're responsible to provide for your children until they're at an age that they no longer need to be supported um, similarly your children similarly your children uh, when you get to an elderly age you have to look after them so you have to you have to provide for them now in terms of uh, female male obviously females will get married and they'll go off in their own homes so their responsibilities are towards their their husband and their 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 children and they actually get provided for by their husband so they're getting provided for. So that leaves the sons. The sons obviously have their own families. However, it's their responsibility equally. So if there's two sons or three sons or four sons, it's not the eldest or the youngest, it's equal. So between them, between, say, three of them, it's their responsibility to, to look after their parents. So they can come to whatever arrangement. If, one, if, for example, the parents wants to live with one or they want to rotate between the three, um, but in terms of financially, they're all equally responsible. I think um, there's one way of looking at this question of like who's responsible. It seems to be a very kind of um, something heavy. But I think if we share a few hadith, it will put things in perspective. Because when you look at the texts, you would actually think that people would vie to look after the parents. Mm -hmm. They'd be the ones saying, no, I want to look after them. Because there's so much there's so much reward. In fact, the, the Ramadan, we're in the month of Ramadan. There's a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ, where he was climbing the member and he said, Ameen, three times. And the Sahaba said, look, you said Ameen. Why did you say Ameen three times? And one of them, uh, he said that Jibreel ﷺ came down. The first time I said Ameen, the Jibreel ﷺ said, may his nose be rubbed in the dust. In other words, may he be disgraced. The one who your name is mentioned and doesn't pray upon you. So when you hear the Prophet's name, and then you say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Prophet said, Ameen. Uh, one was, he said, if somebody who has a parent or two parents and they were not a means for him to reach paradise. In other words, your parent should be a vehicle for you to attain paradise. And if that's not happened because you've not fulfilled their rights, 
then it, and the Prophet is saying Amin to a dua. And if the Prophet says Amin to something, it's not going to be rejected. So that you maybe you'd be disgraced. So that's a, a massive thing. The last thing he says is somebody who Ramadan came to and it wasn't a means for him to be forgiven because so many opportunities and he missed it. May he be disgraced. So your parents are actually a vehicle for you to reach paradise. And there's a similar hadith that says, Al-Walidu awsul abwab al-jannah. That walid, the walid now, normally we think of walid, we think the father. But in Arabic, walid can apply to either parent. It's like the word walid in, our, in classical Arabic, walid can apply to male and female. It's not necessarily uh, a boy, which is modern day standard Arabic. So walid in this hadith means a parent. It says, So awsat usually means, wasat means the middle. But here it means the best. In other words, your, your parent is the best uh, of doors to paradise. So uh, looking after them, being good to them. Never mind the parents. So the parents are one thing. And obviously, uh, your Quran, the Quran says, Thank me, thank Allah, and your parents. Be grateful to me and your parents. Uh, and be good to your, to your parents. So in terms of your parents, they have, and we know the hadith about, you know the the person has most rights on you as your mother and hadith like the paradise is at the feet of your mother and so on um, but never mind your parents even people who are connected to your parents have to be respected a hadith is al-khalatu bi manzilatil um the khala which is your mother's sister is like the mother in terms of status and in other words in terms of, of respect in terms of being good to her is similar to your mother uh, and this hadith always, uh, this next hadith always makes me think. It says, "Abarul birri an yasila rajlu wudda abi," that the best of 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 being good is to uh, for a, a man or or person to uh, be good or um, can make connections or uh, maintain relations with his father's friends. So never mind your father, but your his friends, so people you maybe maybe your father's passed away, but the people he used to be friendly with his 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 mates, um, you should still visit them. You should still be good to them. So if that's if the prophet is telling us to do that, and that's one of the best actions, then what about the actual father himself? And so um, that is in terms of of generally just parents themselves. They have a a status that other people don't have. But we have also generally general hadith about elderly people. Whether it's parents or not, um, that one one hadith says inna min ta'ala that from honouring Allah subhanahu wa taala is ikram the shayba Muslim to be generous um, to uh, somebody a Muslim who is in old age. So being kind, being respectful to uh, an elderly person is from the respect to Allah subhanahu wa taala. And I remember you, you probably know Bashir Man um, and uh, you know somebody I've got a lot of respect for. He's done so much for the community. I mean, back in the 70s, he was the first Muslim counsellor. Um, and, you know, I visited his house and he's got all sorts of awards. I remember one day I see, seeing him in the, the mosque and um, a younger person just kind of bumped him and passed him by and he kind of stumbled a little bit. And I thought, you have no idea who this man who is. this man is, you what know, he's and, achieved, yeah. You know, and this is the thing. These people, these people we should, like, you know, be making space for them. We should be... I mean, in, in the Arab world, I used to love fact that they used to kiss elders' hands. So, I mean, there's a hadith, there's in Riyadh Salaheen where the Sahaba used to kiss the Prophet's hand out of respect. But in the Arab world, when I was in Syria, uh, and also in Yemen as well, they would kiss, if an older person, they would kiss their hand out of respect or their, their father. Um, and the benefit of being kind and good to the elderly actually returns to the person. A hadith in, in, uh, in Tirmidhi says, Man, uh, Ma akramu ما أكرم شاب شيخا لسنه إلا قيد الله من يكرمه عند سنه that um, a young person is not kind is not generous to a person an elderly person due to his in other words respecting him because of his age except that when he gets old Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make somebody there to do the same to him and I remember when we were studying this um, our teacher said that in that is an indication that uh, this person's life's going to be elongated because the hadith says that when you get to old age, someday will uh, be generous to you as well. So one of us, or or, or many of us, 
uh, will get to old age and we would want people to respect us and look after us so we have to in turn do that and again coming back to your question about so when we put when we read hadith like that then you ask me this question it's a different question mm-hmm. because uh, instead of people thinking oh my god who's responsible is it yours is it mine whatever once you read that you're like oh my god this is my ticket to paradise and really I should be wanting for my parents to be with me over my my brother um, and there's also I mean sometimes um, people uh, like a, a, um, a daughter-in-law wants to look after her mother-in-law um, and that's a, that's a great honour I mean they don't have to a son-in-law brother, uh, mother-in-law uh, son-in-law daughter-in-law you don't have to look after somebody else's parents so yes the son has got to look after his own parents but his wife doesn't doesn't need to she doesn't need to look after him never mind his parents but if she does it's an act of sadaqah so in the month of Ramadan what are we doing a lot of the times we're making appeals for sadaqah and charity. And what do we think? We think of cash. But sadaqah, like the hadith says, smiling in the face of your brother is sadaqah, removing some harm in the street is sadaqah, many forms of charity. And one of the uh, ways of doing sadaqah is to look after elderly, whether you should parents or not your parents, everything that you do for them. And, you know, elderly, elderly people can be trying at times because, you know, they, they get... <laughs> they, get, yeah. they can get grouchy and things like that But the thing is um, It's about realising that this person May be my door to paradise I may not have many great actions But by looking after and serving this person they, They're they going to make dua for me At the middle of the night They're going to do all these other things for me If it's going to come to me And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always with the weak and With the elderly, with the vulnerable So by serving them By being good to them They're a means for us to uh, attain paradise. So, the back to the question is yes, it's the it's primarily the son's uh, responsibility, and what they should do is either one person takes it on and he's going to get all the reward, or what they do is they split it amongst themselves. So maybe the parent, um, maybe they all come and stay in that house, and the parent stays there, or they rotate, or it could be that the parents live by themselves but nearby and um, they take turns of going over and making sure they're okay because not everyone's parents are really old. Some of them can live on their own but they'll probably get to a point at some point if they live long enough that they will need care. Yeah, One thing that we um, know as people get older, I think particularly after the age of 70 and 80, is this aspect of dementia. Um, and for people that don't know, I guess dementia is... Um, there's different forms of dementia that you'll have heard of things like Alzheimer's dementia but there's things like vascular dementia and Lewy body dementia all different types really and really what that signifies is where you know perhaps as you get older and particularly uh, I think after the age of 70 it's sort of really the rate of it is really higher that's why you see a lot of people in their 70s and 80s a lot of memory problems but also you know the ability to look after themselves some people say it's you know, they lose their personality. They're not the same person that the, that you know they know from before. And there's a big emphasis in even national sort of government strategy in terms of called a dementia strategy and trying to provide services for for these elders. Um, and I guess part of it is trying to say how do they keep functioning? How do we support them? And um, because often so there's some dementias that is irreversible. So the the natural progression is it'll just get worse. Some some dementias will just they'll have a deficit and that'll just be static. Um, and they even come up with ideas like dementia cafes and stuff because they find that talking about, you know keeping their mind active, talking about past events might be useful. They might be forgetful for day to day stuff, but it's past things that they can remember. Uh, maybe reliving these sort of experiences and sharing it with people of a similar generation. But it seems that especially as Muslims, we're not. Um, and maybe you know there are some elements of it, but I guess there's a real opportunity there for our community to start addressing some of these issues and providing these services. And I guess our mosques and institutions and stuff would be natural places to welcome these elders and try and provide services, etc. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are about that, Sheikh. I guess it's kind of dealing with people who are starting to you know get more and more unwell and you know, the memory problems and it does become difficult. Is there any particular advice you would give to uh, families and carers that are looking after elders that are suffering from forms of dementia? Yeah, so alhamdulillah, I'd say the first thing is, like I said, that, you know, the patience that a person shows, they'll get rewarded for it. I think at a community level, we do need to develop more services. 
where the elderly can come to the mosque or to a community centre and we have activity. I mean, the, these elders have done so much for our community. The mosques that we benefit from, the, the centres that we are using, this is, you know, done by them. This was, this was their hard work that put that together that we enjoy today. So the least we can do is um, provide for them some sort of service where they can come and we, we can do different things with them. People spend time with them. Um, and also, I mean, remember this clip I saw. It's one of my favourite clips actually on YouTube. You've probably seen it. Uh, it's not in English. It's um, it's, a, it's a father and a and um, a son, and they're sitting on a bench, and the son is reading a paper. Have you seen this? I can't remember. So the, fa- so the son's reading a paper, and the father says, "What's that over there?" And he says, "It's a sparrow." And then after a bit, a couple of seconds, he says, "What is that?" He goes, "A sparrow." And he says that about five times, and then the the, the son's getting disturbed because he's trying to read the paper and he puts his paper down and he goes, he goes, what's wrong with you? It's a sparrow, it's a sparrow, it's a sparrow, right? So the, the father just puts his hand to him. He's upset and he's like, oh, where are you going now? So he comes back with a with a, with a a diary and he starts and he says to him, read that. So the son starts to read the diary and he says, you know, so he says, date, whatever. My son turned three today and he saw a sparrow in the garden and he asked me 32 times, what is it? And I told him every each time, it's a, sar, it's a sparrow, son. So that the son puts it down and he kisses his father on the mm. on the forehead. He's almost like tearful. Yeah. But, you know, his father's teaching him a lesson that I I did this for you when you were a child and now I've done it five times and you, and you, and you're, yeah. and you can't take it. And this is the thing that we don't realise is that, you I mean, if you're a parent, you'll realise what children are like looking after them, getting up in the middle of the night. It's not an easy, it's not an easy uh, job. So we have to remember that our parents did that for us. I mean, I remember that realisation hitting me that I had twins. I mean, it was, not, it was a handful, literally a handful. <laughs> and I remember like um, just looking at them and I'm thinking, you know, this is hard work. And I thought, man, this is what my parents did for me. You know, this is what my parents did for me. And then the, the the appreciation, the love, just grows. So I think it's it's about it's about payback. Yeah, they they looked after us. They done all this for us. If someone does you a favor, the least um, that we can do is repay that that favor. We can re- give recompense. Uh, we can't give recompense for our parents. There was a a man who was carrying his mother in tawaf, um, and. Someone asked, or he asked, "Have I repaid my mother for what she's done for me?" And the Prophet some said, "You've not even repaid one suckling of the breast." You know, so the what your mother has done to you, given you birth, looked after you, you'll never be able to repay that. And then, unfortunately, we got we got questions like, uh, "Whose responsibility is it? Is it mine, or is it my sisters, or my brothers?" That again. It's become a very dry question. It's you've missed the whole essence of what our religion is teaching. That question uh, shouldn't be asked in that manner, uh, because like it's it's framed in a way that's a burden. Mm. But it should be, it should be an honour. It should be like you should be vying, you should be running. And again, it's not. It's again because we don't we haven't understood um, the context of the elderly in Islam. We haven't understood our parents in Islam, which is probably one of the reasons we're having this show yeah. is to explain that look, this is what, this is what, this is who these people are. They're 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 like the elite of our community. Yeah. They're not a burden. It doesn't matter what our. And the thing is, see, we're a product of our society. So yes, we're Muslims. Definitely, we're Muslims. Um, whatever cultural background, so maybe you're, you're, you've got Pakistani culture inside. You've got Scottish culture as well because what you, this is where you live and this is what you breathe. But you're also affected by the wider society and the, and the, the thought process. So if you, you're hearing this through the news and the, the elderly seen as like a you know a burden of who's going to pay for their pensions and we've got to make these people work for themselves. And, all that affects you, and you, you might subconsciously start thinking like that. And we have to get ourselves out of that. The way you get yourselves out of that is by understanding, well, what does our religion say? What's Islam saying? What's the Hadith saying? What's the Quran saying? And then when you reframe it, you realise, no, actually, that's the wrong way of thinking about these things. 
and we have to show, we have to lead the way here that no, this is how you, this is how you deal deal with your elderly, not the way you're doing it. Just to emphasise on that, I think um, most parents would agree, I certainly do, is that you don't appreciate what your parents did until you're a parent yourself, and that realisation, like you said, it hits home. Um, so I used to question throughout childhood why my mum and dad did certain things, or I couldn't leave my garden, for example, there was a park down the road, and I thought, it's just five minutes, my friends are there, I couldn't go. But now I'm the same, I'm very cautious and protective of my own children and where they go and what they do and I can only really truly understand is now when I've got my own children. So I think you need that. You, you can never truly understand until you've got your children, you're in that same situation. So yeah, I mean, alhamdulillah. So Sheikh, moving on from that, I guess um, this aspect of... Um, Inheritance and wills and stuff And I don't know if we're going to cover some of that tomorrow In terms of our death and bereavement topic But what advice would you give? Because often um, this is where we see Often families falling out You know, after somebody passes away um, There's a fight over inheritance And some might be practising Some might not be practising The whole thing about Well, you know, what does Islamic law say Versus Scottish law And working out fractions and inheritance etc so I mean have you got any advice I guess inheritance is, is quite a very detailed and, and, and nuanced topic so we're not going to go into the whole thick aspect but I guess what general advice would you give and are there things that we can and our elders can start preparing now before we pass away to make it easier so families don't fall apart and you know and start fighting over inheritance um, actually this is a, a massive Massive topic. Um, I've just you got thirty seconds. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've just um, I've just taught the advanced students uh, and inheritance. We've just been I've been teaching them how to calculate inheritance, all the different points from it, and it is one of those areas I've dealt with cases where, like you said, a lot of a lot of the the uh, family disputes are over inheritance. And really, I actually think this probably needs a, a whole program itself. It's something that I'm 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 actually actively looking into. Uh, there in England, there is the opportunity to get um, a will, which is Sharia compliant. Uh, in Scotland, we haven't got there yet, but inshallah, we'll get there. We're we're uh, I'm, I'm 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 doing I'm having a look into it with a few people. Again, I have no idea. It baffles me that no one's ever done this before. Uh, and again, this is where I've said, I know I've said this before, but you know we have all these discussions about Ramadan and which day Eid is, but it's all these other areas which are so important that no one seems to talk about, no one seems to be doing anything about. And so uh, inheritance, the reason why it's so important because um, money, money affects everybody. Uh, this is not, uh, <laughs> I mean, the amount of family feuds that, that this creates. And there's so much misinformation out there that people do not understand inheritance. They don't understand. A simple concept, for example, is uh, somebody might say, okay, I'm going to give you the house. That's your inheritance. I'm going to give you whatever. That's your inheritance. You can't do that. That's not inheritance. That's a gift. So a gift during your lifetime is different from inheritance. The Islamic concept of inheritance is when you die, the day you die, then what happens is uh, other people become owners of your wealth. So when you leave this world, wherever you leave behind, and on that day that you passed away from this earth, your soul left, that became somebody else's property. Now, if someone took your car, if your car's there and one of your siblings took it, I'll just take that. Are you going to give them your car? You're not going to give them it because it's your car. But when it comes to inheritance, for some reason, we tend to think, uh, okay, well, you can have that, and you can have that. Yeah. People are not thinking, especially for cultural reasons. A lot of women um, miss out here because culturally, maybe their father said, "Oh well, you're married, you're looked after by your husband, you don't need any inheritance." This is completely un-Islamic, completely un-Islamic. And my advice is, do not uh, um, give up your inheritance until. You have you you worked it out Islamically, and you know how much it is. Because when women say, "Okay, that's fine. I'll I, I, I don't, I, I'll, I'll give it up. I'm, I don't need it." Well, tomorrow your husband might die. Mm. Tomorrow you may get divorced. You may become a single mother, right? Uh, and say you give your inheritance to your brother, 
And tomorrow he dies. Who gets his inherit? Who gets that money? His wife and his kids. <laughs> and you might not even like his wife. Right? <laughs> so you've just given her all your money. So people are not thinking straight. And the other thing is, when you actually do the calculations, what you might realise is that your share is, for example, a quarter of a million pound. Now, when you're told you have got a quarter of a million pound, which is yours, yeah. and then you then if you want to give it away, it's a different matter. <laughs> See, when you, you don't know what it is, you think, ah, oh, it's fine, I'll yeah. just it's okay, I don't want it. But when you know it's a quarter of a million, then you think, wait a minute, a quarter of a million pound? Yeah. I could that could be my that could be my retirement. I could just put that into a couple of flats and that could provide me and that's me got my security for the rest of my life and why shouldn't you because that is your money it's your right that is your right it's not It's not. you're not doing anyone a favour by, by, there should be no guilt attached for you to take that as if you're taking someone else's money this is your money but that's the difficulty because it's such an emotionally uh, vulnerable time isn't it you've just lost somebody and you you know often you don't want to create fights and burdens but you know I guess the sharia has given it for a reason there must be some wisdom in it and it's, you know, one of the, one of the areas, and I taught this to the students. One of the areas where um, there is actually very little of difference of opinion between the four schools is inheritance, and the reason for that is Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has detailed it in the Quran. So why did Allah Subhanahu wa Taala detail this so much in the Quran? Right? Why is there not much difference of opinion? Because it's so detailed, it didn't leave any room. That shows the import, importance that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala put on this topic, and. I remember I was looking through my notes one, and I had a statement from a teacher saying that that um, one of the ways that people end up with haram money is through inheritance. So they may have a halal business, right? Whatever they do, maybe it's a tax revenue. I don't know whatever it is, right? It's halal business. It's nothing haram, but haram income comes in because they've taken inheritance which is not theirs. That's not your. You can't take something. Haram is what we, you mean? Because it's not yours. Unjustly. Taking somebody else's. If, if your share is a hundred thousand and you're taking two hundred thousand, that means that extra money is somebody else's money. You've taken it without their permission. It's like me going at your house, grabbing stuff and leaving. It's haram to do that. So a lot of people do not understand um, this area of inheritance. The when you when you pass away, that money is not your choice. It doesn't matter if you like one child, you don't like another child. It's automatic. They will inherit from you. You're only allowed up to one third. Of your wealth that you can give away to a non-inheritor, somebody like a mosque, a mosque or a charity, or whatever it is, other relatives which are not her- inheritors, up to a third. Um, but to at least minimum two thirds will go to inheritors automatically without your choice. You can't do anything about it. You want to give money in your life, that's fine. But the day that you die, whatever you leave, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, half a million, million, whatever you left on the day you left this world, will automatically get calculated and given out to your inheritors, and that is Allah's law. And what what is the status of somebody who has maybe fallen out with one of their children or something and says, "I don't want them to have anything"? No, you can't do that. It's not a choice. It's, it's not a choice. At least. It's not a choice. No, it's not a choice. Okay. And I guess that's where the, the part of the difficulty becomes because I guess in, you have to fit in with what Scots law says and it makes with, it make wills yeah. compatible. But with, with Scots, yeah, with Scots law, um, you have to write a will. Uh, so, um, and if you don't write a will, it goes, goes into something called testy, but I don't, I don't want to get into that. Um, but generally, you need to write a will, and what you'd have to do is stipulate in the will that I want my uh, wealth to be distributed according to uh, Sharia, Islamic law. Um, these are the executors who will be in charge of that. But then you get into other areas where um, tax tax gets involved, inheritance tax. Mm-hmm. After a certain threshold, you get hit with 40% inheritance tax, which goes to Her Majesty. And though, although we love the Queen, I don't think we want her to... <laughs> she doesn't need any more, does she? When you've been working hard your entire life, you don't want to give her 40% of your, your wealth. So this is where um, you have to structure the will in a way where it's tax-efficient, uh, but people are getting the, the correct shares and so this is where uh, it requires a bit of work I mean Omran's been, been uh, in, in my inheritance classes what have you from, from just somebody that didn't know anything about inheritance and then teaching inheritance what have you what the, what are the kind of alarm bells that went off in your mind that you think that people don't know this kind of stuff and wow I didn't know that there's, um, there's lots of it, Sheikh, so I've read the notes it's difficult I think it's a lot more complex than people think it is set out, but 
to even calculate it in a practical example is difficult. So end of life care, um, palliative care and hospices, and I guess it's really as people um, are coming towards the end of their lives, and as we mentioned right at the start, obviously this aspect can affect young people as well, so it's not just the elderly. But so many issues come out of this, and I guess it's, you know, even the whole aspect of terminal illnesses. So Sheikh, I guess... One of the things, certainly working in hospitals and in treating patients, is obviously this balance of somebody's right to be treated and kept alive versus, I guess, their right to die. And I guess where we see that often conflict is sometimes, I guess, inherently, particularly as doctors and, and, and medical staff, your instinct in trainings to keep people alive. But there will be points where you'll say, actually, this is not in the person's best interest or the quality of life. So it's not just quantity of life, but quality of life. And I guess there's other aspects of the person's right to pass away and, you know, there's aspect of resuscitation, etc. So Islamic, and I, and I guess where it comes in, I guess, Islamically as well, is this, you know, the big driver is to keep people alive, you know, and prolong life. So, so I mean, what are your, where, where do we stand in this whole area in terms of can people legitimately, you know, Islamically say actually we're going to turn off the life support machine or we don't want the person to be resuscitated if they have a, you know, have a you know, cardiac arrest, etc. So have you got any knowledge and wisdom and, and thoughts around this whole area? I remember I was on a train to Eremus a couple of years ago <clears throat> and I was on the way to Edinburgh and teach a class and someone texted me this question that I'm in hospital and, and they, they want to switch off the machines what do you think what do you think and I was like seriously you want me to answer this on a text yeah. Yeah, this is a, a serious question um, generally speaking uh, I mean the whole question of euthanasia uh, where it's um, uh, induced by the person it's not allowed so you're not allowed to we're not allowed to kill ourselves so suicide's haram um, you're not allowed to take steps to kill yourself or take drugs to kill yourself. The only situation where it becomes permissible is where um, you, um, you know, decide not to take medication. Um, and especially when it comes to um, life support situations, there's a question mark over scholars differ whether death is pronounced when the heart stops beating or is when the brain the brain dies because you can have brain death but keep the the heart pumping through a machine um what the various kind of uh sharia councils these so these are councils where scholars get together and discuss these questions what just seems to be the general conclusion is that they say that if uh, trustworthy doctors and their medical expertise come to the opinion um, that uh, that life is is going to, that this sickness they've got is chronic, it's untreatable, and it's terminal. It's going to death is inevitable, and, and you're really just elongating the the uh, the uh, inevitable, and you're just the artificially keeping somebody alive. Then at that point, it is permissible to switch off the machine. But what you do is you allow the person to uh, die by themselves. So we don't we don't assist anyone in in, in uh, killing them. But in terms of you can decide not to take um, a particular medicine, um, and obviously without that, I mean you 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 might you might be cured through Quran or something. But if that leads to death, then that's that would be permissible. So the same thing with the resuscitation if it's felt. That it's um, futile. If the medical doctors feel it's futile, there's no um, real chance of this working. Then again, the choice can be made not to resuscitate either. Mm. It's interesting. There's a, a report that I was reading in preparation for this show, and um, it did various focus groups. And there's one comment from um, an individual who said, "Looking at the way, and this from as a Muslim." Looking at the way as a community, we don't think about death and dying matters. The GPs and the staff put my mother on end-of-life care and I never knew about it. It was a shock really to digest all of this information. It had to be done very quickly because you have to make a decision very quickly. I think that as an individual, as a community, it was something very difficult to comprehend because as a family we never discussed dying or death or end-of-life or planning for it. There was no information, there was no support. And then one of the imams, uh, 
he put a come across Yunus Dudwala uh, said, shared this concern. He said, having had the experience of being in hospital for nearly 20 years, having looked at this area for quite a long time, religiously you're allowed to have an advanced care plan where it stipulates a limit on intervention. People can plan their care, but I think there is a lack of awareness from a religious perspective. So do you think that bit sort of echoes, I guess, what, what you were saying earlier? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I know... Um uh, Mom, Yunus Dudwala, so I know him pretty well. So he's been a chaplain for a long time. So I, I would agree with him. The the, the, the issue is that like inheritance, um, a lot of these things are not getting discussed. Uh, and then when they're not getting discussed, when it does actually happen, it's going to happen. I mean, death is going to occur. When it does actually happen, then it's like, oh, we need to deal with this now. And that actually makes things a hundred times worse. So just like inheritance, that conversation needs to happen beforehand. And I've spoke to a few people. I've said, look, you need to talk to your parents about this. And they said, I don't know how to bring it up because if I bring it up with my parents, they might think, ah, oh, you're already thinking about my death, yeah. right? Um, but I said, look, if, uh, you're going to get hit with tax if you don't do this. So if you explain to them the tax situation. So there needs to be a, more, a lot more open conversations um, it would be beautiful if it's led by the elders. Uh, however, um, the conversations need to be need to be had. I remember um, one of the concerns I had uh, with my father was, I mean, it's not so, it's not so much now. I'm against like people taking their bodies abroad because of the interference with the body. Uh, it's highly disrespectful. They take organs out and so on, as a delay in burial and and number of issues and so. Uh, I really didn't want to get into that situation. So, but I had that conversation with my father, and my father did say, "Look, you know, yeah, bury me wherever I pass away. Just bury me there." And I was grateful that we had that conversation. I've had that conversation with my uh, uncle, who's still alive, and initially he did want to get married in Pakistan, but he's changed his mind now. Um, so, having those conversations, it just makes things a lot easier, a lot more uh, clear. So uh, we do need to start having these kind of conversations about care plans, like what would, if this happens, what should we do? So that it's clear, uh, because at the end of the day, you may start arguing with your siblings because one sibling might want to keep the life machine on, another sibling might want to take it off, and then you, that leads to other problems. So again, um, like we've talked about so many times, this is just another area that needs attention. The way, I'm, the way I look at things in the community is that there's so many gaps and all of these gaps need attention and we need to start dealing with it. They're not going to go, these things are not going away. They're going to come up year in, year out. We're going to have this discussion next year again, I guarantee it. We haven't, we're having the same discussions. I was talking to you about this in the break. We're having the same discussion over years, over years, over years. And eventually, you know, there's only so much you can say. We need to now translate that into action. We need to say, right, what can we now do practically that's going to uh, make our experience, our lives better? And that we is, is, I guess, the listeners in the community. It's not just waiting for you or... <laughs> yes, everybody. Or this is, this is or somebody else. This is, almost. this is a collective responsibility. It's not the responsibility of just imams or a few individuals. It's everybody's responsibility and everyone has to uh, sacrifice a bit of their time and say, right, I'm going to do something. I want to contribute as well to the betterment of other people. Everyone's got a role to play, everybody. So in the last few minutes, really to focus on an aspect which I think is quite close to home. Um, and one of my main experiences of going to hospices and I guess somebody with a terminal illness, um, apart from, I guess, as a medical student, etc., was visiting a hospice and it was for our dear brother, Babur Salim, Mela Graham, the highest status in Jannah, inshallah. And he was, you know, very active in the community and Umran, a relative of yours and beloved to a lot of us. Um, and he developed this terminal illness. As a family, Umran, I mean, what were some of the issues that faced yourselves in terms of this really difficult thing? Because I guess... You know, Barbara's fit and healthy and then all of this comes out of the blue and to the extent where I remember visiting him in the hospice before you know, before he passed away and, and I think many people did. So as a family, I mean, what were some of the issues uh, that you were dealing with apart from the whole emotional impact? It was uh, a real strain on my uh, mummy and uh, my cousins who were living in the household. He slowly 
became uh, more and more dependent upon them. He developed uh, MND, a motor neuron disease, so he was unable to basically grasp, for example, initially, and then that slowly, um, you know, got worse. And he became, you know, weaker, and he went from having slight issues to then becoming wheelchair-bound and having to obviously be... be um, taken around and that changed to being bed bound um, you know his neck muscles weren't he needed assistance with all aspects of his life in the end and that's difficult I mean it's emotionally difficult um, he was you know he had a fantastic personality and he was very independent and he was you know physically very capable and I think for him as well from my conversations with him he he did sort of you know I think struggle with that having to depend on them but they were always there, but there was issues with getting a bed, for example. We needed a bed, so that took a while to, to happen. Um, the Marie Curie Hospice were good. The people came out to the house prior to him actually going into the hospice. He had some, um, you know, some machinery set up on his laptop, so he lost the ability to speak as well. So it was a slow but sort of steady deterioration. And for some people that aren't familiar with this whole aspect, I mean, I guess what was the tipping point that they f- that was felt that hospice was more appropriate than being at home? Was it just the intensity of the care that he required? Is that, yeah, that, was yeah. that? It was constant, you know, it was it became very, very unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, the family were always there, there was always people around him, but it was was very difficult. Um, he was, he was um, just, they were unable to, and it was for his own benefit as well that yeah. he was in a specialist sort of professional uh, environment because a lot of issues with pain relief sure. and breathing yes. so and stuff like that he was on morphine drivers i believe yeah. so for pain relief but the family even at the hospice i think the the staff commented on how many just constantly yeah. there was somebody there there was a team of people there you know so we had a fantastic support from the family but it was just something that became more and more difficult were there any ethical issues that came out from this whole aspect? I, I don't think there was. I mean, I think it was just, like, it was um, just inevitable, like, like Sheikh mentioned. It was, a you know, d- deterioration. But there wasn't any ethical sort of questions, really. It was all done, you know. And were the discussions that actually when do we have to make a decision about do we carry on with this or not, or this certain treatment or not, or pain relief or not? I think the MND, by its nature, there, there's no treatment. It is just a pain relief thing. Um, I don't think, you know, I wasn't party to that conversation. Okay. Maybe that did happen with my aunt yeah. and my cousins, but um, I don't think it really came to that. I think we, we kind of knew, but it was just slow. And, and supporting. Eventually absolutely. it happened, yeah. And Sheikh Amr, I guess, yeah, I know you were very involved around that time, but this whole aspect, I guess, supporting people during this very difficult times, what are some of the issues that come up and people seek advice around? Um, I think one is um, a will. If if they've if they've not written a will, again these inheritance questions we were talking about before. How do we sort of inheritance out? Uh, advice around that. Um, I remember Barbara visiting, and um, I mean I'd just gone there to visit him as a as a visitor, and the family said to me, came out to me in the, in the waiting room and said, "Look, um, we've got a request from you, and the request is that Barbara wants nasiha. He wants advice." Um, and we've asked a few other people, but they've not been able to do it. They became emotional, and we need somebody. That's, that's his wish. Um, so I had that um, experience of speaking to essentially a dying man and having to say bluntly that you are, you're going to meet your Lord soon, and these are the things you need to be now thinking about. Um, and you know it's not easy with his wife she's standing there beside him crying but I had to do that I had to say look um, this is the re- this is the reality of the situation is that um, you're going to le- meet your Lord inshallah like all of us but also um, encouraging him that look Allah could have given you a sudden death you may have not been able to say goodbye you may have not been able to make pardon with people um, or to seek repentance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in a sense, this is a blessing that you know, you're getting this time that you know you're leaving. You can see your goodbyes, you can give your last instructions, you can sort your will, um, you can make your, and very importantly, make your tawbah, your repentance with Allah. He couldn't speak at that point. I said, look, it doesn't matter if you can't speak, do it in your heart. Allah understands all these languages. 
um, and stay in a constant state of of, of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, and understanding that whatever pain you're going through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is wiping your sins away so it's a cleansing for the dying person um, and also to ask them to make dua for us the hadith in Ahmad that, that says the, the, the certain times when dua is accepted one is from an, an ill person so asking him that you're in a position we're asking you to make um, dua for us and I had a similar not as much but a similar experience with uh, Abid Bashir who passed away um, at the age of 45 all of a sudden he got you know, diagnosed with cancer and again the same thing happened they said Sheikh we, we want you to I want advice and again the family members are there and and, um, and I had to some, say something very similar um, because at that point you have to respect it's one thing obviously everyone else's feelings but ultimately it's that person that we have to give priority that this is a person who's now going to leave this world what do I need to now reiterate to this person that's going to be of benefit for that person everyone else becomes secondary is that and, and is really that person and you can discuss with that person how would you let your funeral how would you let your burial how would you you know who do you want there all these things um, can be done so that the person feels Alhamdulillah, you know, I've, 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 I've sorted everything out and there's nothing that, that doesn't need sorting out and a lot of people have said this, that, you know, some people have passed away, like in the, the year before they passed away, they managed to sort out a lot of things, so that's a blessing, that's a blessing from God because like I said, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow and you haven't got a will you haven't said anything and everything's all over the place, so this is a uh, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to to um, get the person in the right frame of mind and tie up all these things. Mm. Certainly, on that aspect, there's I guess there's options. Things like it's a, a lot of it's about capacity. Is that somebody that then can't make that decision? And there's, you get legal, you know, power of attorneys and stuff. And again, a lot of that is I guess planning ahead. Certainly, if you know somebody's becoming unwell, while they still have that ability to do that. But, you know, I think this is really a really difficult topic. It's important, like you said, Sheikh, sometimes you do need the right person to say, actually, there's a lot of emotion involved, but here, what is the best thing to do in that situation, you know? I mean, it was very difficult for me. I was just thinking there, I mean, the wrong impact on you is... Yeah, it was, very, it, was, it was very difficult for me, especially the first time with Babur, it was very difficult for me, because Abid, it was a different situation. He'd done syllabus. he was a student... Um, similar kind of age, similar generation, uh, is a bit is slightly easier. Maybe because I was already I'm a bit older now as well, and I had already had that experience with Barber. But Barber was my first experience. I wasn't expecting it. I just turned up at the hospital and been put on the spot. But I knew I had to do the right thing, and I knew it was going to be difficult. And uh, it was it was very emotional for everyone in the room, especially for him. Yeah. But I had to say, you know this is it and it wasn't easy so I think on that note I think we'll finish for the night Uh, all I can say I guess is um, we've covered various different aspects coping with old age dementias inheritance and wills and you know touched a bit a little bit on end of life palliative care hospice these are all aspects which are almost topics and courses within themselves but hopefully um, by starting the discussion, as we can just say towards the end, this is really making dua for you know everyone that's passed away, uh, in whatever circumstance. You know these are special last few days in Ramadan, and really making that sincere dua for all these people that have passed away, uh, people that are unwell, you know, with with physical and mental illnesses, terminal illnesses, because um, the power of dua ultimately, you know, illness and and health is in Allah's hands. Um, Sheikh, do you want to say just some final words? It's a very difficult topic to talk about, you know. It's a difficult topic, especially but, um, when you know people. That I think I'll tell you just on that. I mean, as a doctor, you used to see a lot of death, and it's it's always difficult when you don't know the person. It's different when you don't know the person. It's a bit easier because a bit detached. Mm. It's when it's, when you know the families and you know the individuals. You know, adds a whole different layer to things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a difficult area because, de- I mean, death is you know if you're you're in a room and everyone's talking about something, you mentioned death, it just <laughs> it really kills that. It just kills the atmosphere. So it's it's one of those topics that 
your nafs doesn't really want to talk about. Um, we don't really want to deal with it until we really have to. But it's one of those things is you're you're um, you're just delaying the inevitable, and one day you will have to face it. And so it's better to have that conversation earlier. Things like inheritance, uh, things like discussing old age, discussing illnesses, these these things can happen. How would you want to do that? As a family, I think it's very important, very, very important to discuss these things. It can save so much anguish in the future. I mean, I had, I've had cases where people come to me with an inheritance case and because, inher- like, so for example, say a father's passed away, but when the grandfather passed away, his inheritance wasn't sorted out. So you're going back two, three generations Gosh. as a complete mess and you're like, oh my Lord, how, how, you know, how, do, you, how do people get themselves in such a in such a situation and then you're trying to untie and this is unfortunately not just in this area in so many other areas we always seem to be let's make a mess and then try and sort it out that's not the way that's not the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the sharia the sharia has been made in a way it gives you guidelines it tells you what to do what not to do so that it doesn't create a mess it prevents a lot of the the problems so with inheritance with part of care um, getting old all of these Awkward, difficult conversations need to be had. And the thing is, if you need uh, something to to break the ice, you can just say, we were talking, we were listening to Radio Ramadan and this is what they were advising and use that as an intro to start that conversation in your family. Because it'll save a lot of difficulties later on. So Jazakallah khair everyone. Uh, just a reminder just to make dua for everyone that is ill and passed away, inshallah. Um, so tomorrow's topic doesn't get much easier, <laughs> So I think tomorrow's uh, We're talking about death and bereavement So literally we've gone from cradle to the grave uh, Inshallah So if uh, we live long enough till tomorrow We'll be discussing death and bereavement You can contact us on the Facebook page There'll be a post up And there's a ways of submitting questions anonymously So take that advantage uh, Before the show tomorrow And then hopefully the following weekend, uh, next Friday and Saturday, perhaps on a lighter note, there's, you know, we'll be planning for Eid. We'll be perhaps reflecting on the Ramadan, tips for going forward, but also we might have a bit of a special show next weekend, which we are like a bit more lighthearted and a bit more listeners to call in as well. So tune in tomorrow, half 12 as usual. Um, but from uh, myself, Sheikh Amr and Umran, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.